Okay, children, you can head on out, and I certainly want to say as you're heading out, what a wonderful job on your instruments, so I hope you'll keep working hard, uh, but you can head on out, all the young people, uh, four years old to the fourth grade, and you can head out with my wife, have a wonderful time there, and they had a wonderful time last night, and uh, certainly the Lord's been working there, and certainly encouraged about that. Good crowd again here tonight, so thank you for coming, and it's certainly been a wonderful meeting. It's hard to believe we just got one more night, one more night, and then Luke and Austin, myself and my my wife get in our vehicles and we head to Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah, head over there, a little town called Malvern. And we're going to be in Gospel Light Baptist Church uh, doing our War of Special Forces, which is a Christian school meeting, and reaching out in the community there with three rally nights. Some of you are familiar with that from the Cola Clash. And appreciate your prayers next week for the team. And then, of course, we'll be transitioning. My wife and I'll be heading back to revival meetings, and Luke and Austin will head to Brother Bosler. And I want to just tell you ahead of time, Luke and Austin, if you think I'm tough, Brother Bosler is, I mean, he is tough. Okay, so I just want to get you ready for him, but uh, I'm teasing. But anyway, it's sure, um, uh, certainly always a delight to be at Kingdom Baptist Church and see what the Lord's doing here. And I will tell you, friends, uh, it's uh, always been exciting to see uh, what you've been doing, trying to develop your young people with music. But you know what? They're getting better. What do you think? Uh, see, you could see them every week. You may not see the progress. I come back and think, wait, they're way better. I'm seeing Yusuf up at the orchestra. I'm saying, something's happened. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's just great. Okay. So, um, uh, so anyway, I hope you're excited. And uh, so many of your children are a part of that. It kind of reminds me of our, our ministry uh, back several years ago. Hey, you got to start somewhere, don't you? And that's kind of how it started. And I kind of bring back a little bit of memories of those early days of getting the orchestra going. And of course, it has flourished since then, which I anticipate here as well. And so certainly a blessing to see the progress and what the Lord's doing. Well, we're on a journey. And if you uh, have been here, you know that our theme for the week is faith without works is dead. Now, in previous times I've been here, one of the emphasis I've had is on faith. Because I find that a lot of people, if they're not biblically taught, are in a works mindset. Okay, they believe in works. They don't believe in works salvation. I mean, if you're in an independent Baptist church, you certainly believe in salvation by faith. But Satan's no dummy. He gets that works thing into us. And we believe in sanctification by works. We believe in assurance by works. And it gets us all messed up. Because as we talked about, the means of the Christian life for revival, whatever, is faith. And we've talked about the importance of faith. But faith results in works. It results in obedience, and that obedience then becomes a means for more faith. Okay, so we've tried to explain all that. Some of you have been on the journey. And so I'd like to tonight get a little more practical. Let's just take one of the issues. Could we do that? One of the issues we struggle with. We touched on it the other night, but let's give it a whole message. Could you go to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter number 1. And we're going to look at one verse here this evening, Acts chapter 1. Verse number eight, and uh, this is, of course, right before the ascension. And the Lord Jesus is giving some very important information to the disciples uh, that literally uh, is our information to this very day. And so I want to preach a simple message on reaching our Jer Jerusalem. Reaching our Jerusalem. So if you want to go to Acts chapter one, verse number eight, I'm going to read it. And then I'm going to read it again, putting in application for the folks in this room. So let's read verse number eight, familiar verse. Some of you can quote it. It says, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now, could I reread that? And could I put in an application for Canaan Baptist Church? Okay, so we're going to change the geography, okay? This is not a new version, okay? We're just making application. Okay, so here it is. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Covington and in all Georgia and in the United States and unto the uttermost parts of the world. Did you catch that? Amen. So reaching your Jerusalem. It starts where it starts. And obviously in this congregation, in time, God's going to call some of you to another place in Georgia. And for some of you, maybe another place in the United States. And for some of you, maybe somewhere in the uttermost parts of the world. There are young people on this stage tonight who God's call is on their life to minister somewhere else. But it all starts right here, okay? Reaching our Jerusalem. In 1980, George Gallup conducted, conducted a Gallup poll of evangelical Christian of American believers. 
And in that poll, this is stunning to me, he found that only 2% had ever introduced anybody to Jesus Christ. 98% of American believers had never won anybody to Jesus Christ. Now that's a stunning statistic, can't even say the word statistic, but one of which ought to trouble us. Because all of us recognize God's telling us right here what our job is. You shall be witnesses unto me. First off, where you are, and then in the greater, the state, and then the country, and then for some, you'll go to the uttermost parts of the world. Now, you say, well, preacher, I, uh, I've tried, but I just haven't been very effective. Well, certainly some people uh, in their zeal can be a little misguided. Kind of reminds me of the story I heard from a pastor in England who had an eccentric member who was quite a zealous Christian. But many times in his enthusiasm, he um, had a little bit of mental de deficiency and he often did things wrong. He was a barber and so one day he decided, you know, I'm going to give the first customer the gospel, whatever it takes. And so the guy wanted to shave, you know, back in the day with a straight edge and he got them all lathered up and he uh, started sharpening the razor. And boy, his timing was off because he lift the razor and he says, are you ready to meet God? <laughs> Yeah, he lost that first customer, was out the door, shaving cream and all, yeah. You know, some people mean well, but their timing's off. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, so some have tried and been ineffective. Maybe that's you. You say, preacher, I made an effort at it, but I just haven't seen a lot of success. I've tried to, but I've gotten discouraged. And I will tell you sometimes, can I say this carefully, that we become defeated. Why? Because of our past experience. And what I want us to do is, like you probably learned this week, is sometimes we have to reject our experience and embrace, and embrace what the Bible says. Because we find some different truth here. So uh, look what it says here in Acts chapter 8. It gives us basically two essential uh, things we need to understand to be effective in reaching our Jerusalem. Number one, we must understand what we have. Number two, we need to understand who we are. It's that simple. Now, if you get a hold of this, if you understand what you have and you understand who you are, then you will be ready to be effective in reaching your Jerusalem. So let's start with the very first phrase. It says, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now, if we studied out the Greek language, the idea here is real simple. It's pretty much you can pick it up real quickly. It's the idea you get the power when you get the Holy Spirit. Power is not some impersonal force. It's not some, some kind of zap. No, power is all wrapped up in a person of power, and his name is the Holy Spirit. Now, the question I would ask you, and maybe you'd want to know, is, okay, when did we get the Holy Spirit? And we all know, the moment you got saved, the Holy Spirit moved in, and he's not leaving. So right now, every believer in this room, it doesn't matter how ineffective you feel, how powerless you feel, how defeated you have been, every believer in this room has within you what you need to be effective. See, the Bible says, in fact, sometimes there's some dear Christian brothers of us that are waiting for a second blessing. Now, may I say this? If you're waiting for a second blessing, can I say it clearly? Every blessing you need, you got with the first blessing. The Bible says in Romans 8, 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him, don't miss this, freely give us, anybody know the next two words? All things. The moment you got saved, you got Jesus, you got his spirit, and when you did, you got everything you needed to be effective in this Christian life. You don't need a second blessing, you simply need to access the first blessing, you see. Because we got it all the moment we got saved. In other words, friends, when it comes to Christians, it's not the have and the have-nots. We're all the haves. It's just the accessing and the accessing not. Some people are living in the reality of who lives inside of them, and some people are acting like he doesn't live there. But we all have him. Okay, you say, okay, preacher, I get that. Uh, so what's the problem? Maybe this illustration will kind of help us. But um, years ago in some mission field, I'm not sure where, there was a missionary by the name of Herbert Jackson. He showed up on the mission field, and, and uh, the former missionary showed him that there was a mission car. But the one problem with the car was you, you had to get it started when it was moving. You couldn't start it alone. 
And so this guy was quite an uh, you know, innovative type guy, and there was a school nearby. He went over to the headmaster and asked if the headmaster every morning at 8 o'clock, if some boys could come out, and they'd, of course, get a kick out of pushing the car. He'd start it, and then the rest of the day, he'd just leave it running, or he'd park it on a hill. You know what I'm talking about? So he could go down like that. And uh, he thought himself quite, you know, quite ingenious with this plan. And, and it worked well, of course, a little inconvenient, but it worked quite well for the mission. And, and uh, after a couple of years, this missionary uh, got some a tropical illness, and he was going to have to go back uh, to his home country, get some, get some uh, remedies and help. And, and in the meantime, there came an interim missionary to take over for him. So the interim missionary came in, and he was explaining everything, and oh, he came to the car. So this car, and he explained the problem with the car, and then he explained that every morning some boys would come over and push it. And this young man who was coming in to be a substitute was, um, had some mechanic ability. So he opened the hood and began twisting and turning a few things and said, Brother Jackson, the problem is that there's a bad connection between the engine and the, and the battery. And he did a little work and he sat in the front seat. The car was completely still and he turned the ignition and the car roared to life. See, the problem, friend, was not that there wasn't enough power. There was enough power. The problem was there was a bad connection. You know, all the believers have all the power you ever need in the person of the Holy Spirit. You know what the problem is? A lot of Christians have a bad connection. You say, well, preacher, what is the connection? Well, let me give you a little clue. And some of the early church members that had great power in their life, a man by the name of Stephen in Acts 6, 5, the Bible says a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Acts 6 and verse 8, it says again about Stephen, full of faith and Power. Oh, that's interesting. Then Barnabas in Acts 11 says, For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. Well, maybe the connection between the power and the effectiveness of the believer is that issue of faith. Sure seems like it, doesn't it? Yes, okay, faith is the problem. It's the connection. We've been talking about faith a lot. And, of course, how faith always results in obedience. So just get a couple, a couple thoughts here when it comes to faith. Number one, the problem is not the message. The problem is the messenger. It's interesting in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul said, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Now that it seems to infer that if he said I gave the gospel and it was not in word only, it must be that you can give the gospel in word only. Say, preacher, what are you talking about? It was C.H. Spurgeon that said, I'd rather preach six words in the power of the Holy Spirit than preach 70 years of sermons without the Spirit. Wow. What a statement. How about D.O. Moody? There is nothing more death-dealing in all of the world than the gospel without the Spirit's power. The letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Reminds me of a little anecdote. R.A. Torrey was one day doing one of the great big uh, revival meetings. I think it was in Australia. Could have been U.S., but one of his big union campaigns. And uh, he would go backstage and he would be observing all the counseling going on as people came forward to get saved. And he noticed one man struggling. In 45 minutes, he worked with this sinner who had come to, uh, to desiring to be saved. And, and uh, uh, finally, the personal worker just came to Dr. Torrey in exasperation. He said, Dr. Torrey, I, I don't know what to do. I've worked with him 45 minutes and he didn't seem any closer to salvation than when we started. Dr. Torrey sat down. Five minutes led him to Jesus. And it was clearly he got saved. The exasperated personal worker walked up and said, Dr. Torrey, what's the problem? Oh, he said, it's real simple. He said, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and you're not. <laughs> now that's a little blunt, but if you're Ari Torrey, I guess you could say that. But you know, there is some truth in that. See, the friends, I, what I mean by that is, if all we've got is words, we're in trouble. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the problem's not the message. Can I tell you something about the gospel in 39 years of preaching the gospel to teenagers? The gospel's not fair. You say, what do you mean it's not fair? It's powerful. You know what the gospel is? It's like a fisherman throwing grenades in a lake. It's not fair. Then all he does is gather up the dead fish on the top of the... That's how powerful... You say, well, preacher, I don't think it's that powerful. Oh, yeah, it is. 
The gospel is powerful, and you ought to trust the gospel. Give, may I say this carefully? I do all I can to present the gospel clearly. I use illustrations, analogies, and everything else. But I will tell you, you know what I've learned? The power is not in my ability to give the gospel. The power's in the gospel. <laughs> And just, it's like this, friends, just give the gospel and give God a chance and literally come to the gospel, not depending on human effort, not depending on your words, not depending on your ability to wow or to speak or whatever, but depending upon the simplicity of the gospel. See, the problem is not the message. If there's a problem, it's the messenger. So that might help us a little bit. The second is the problem's not the harvest. The problem is the laborers. In John chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus says, Say not ye there are four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white, all ready to harvest. Now, here's the problem. Do you know what Jesus is telling us? He's telling us that Covington, Georgia right now, the problem is not that the harvest is not ready. He says that's not the problem. The problem is the laborers are few. The problem in the state of Georgia is not that the harvest isn't ready. The problem is that the laborers are few. Now, as I travel the country, you know what I found? Every part of the country has an excuse why it's tough there. Yeah, you go up to New England. Ooh, New England. I mean, everybody's great-grandfather is buried in the church graveyard of some liberal church. Oh, it's just tough here in New England. Yeah. Go over to the Pacific Northwest. Washington, Oregon, oh, it's tough up here. Only 2% of the people go to church on a Sunday morning. I'm thinking 98% don't. That sounds good. But anyway, 2%, only 2% go to church. Wow, it's tough up here in the Pacific Northwest. Well, oh, California. Oh, preacher, this is California, land of the fruits and nuts. I am telling you, man, I'm telling you, this place is wacko. I'm telling you, it's tough here in California. Yeah. Now, I'm not diminishing the reality of cultural issues, and I'm not even diminishing the reality of Satan has greater hold in some areas than other. But I am telling you this, if God tells us the harvest is ready, it must be ready. Amen. I'm convinced that everywhere in this country, God is ripening the harvest. Amen. And he's saying the problem is not that people aren't ready to get saved. The problem is the laborers are few. And when you get a hold of that, it's very helpful. Because you know what? Many times we determined uh, the readiness to the harvest by our defeated experience instead of the words of God. Yeah. So we think it's not ready because we've had dorms slammed in our face or this has happened or this has happened and we just kind of give up and say, wow, it's tough. You say, by the way, do you have an excuse down south? Do you find that people, oh yeah, yeah, they have it. Oh, hey preacher, it's tough down south. Everybody's saved. You go knock on the door. I go to such, such a Baptist church. Who's your preacher? I don't know. I haven't been there in 25 years. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay, yeah. It's tough down south. Boy, tough down south. Everybody's got an excuse. But I'm telling you, friends, what if you go to work tomorrow and you looked around the workplace and realized every single one of those people, God is ripening their harvest. God's getting them ready for harvest. And the problem is not them. The problem is the laborers are few. Well, that'll change your perspective. You know, sometimes, friend, I'm going to tell you this. We, are, we miss what God's doing. You know why? Because we're caught up in our experience. We interpret our experience unbiblically. If I can give you this illustration, it might help. I, I remember several years ago, I was in East Moline, Illinois, and I think we had 58 kids come to one of our rallies. I, 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 don't, I could be wrong about that, but that's kind of seemed the number that I remember. And I remember that, more, uh, that uh, afternoon, it was an afternoon meeting, and I preached our gospel message. And when I was done preaching, gave an invitation, had several young people come forward. But I remember while I preached that day, there was a big old boy, probably 220 pounds. And while I preached, I remember him laughing, mocking, I mean, not giving anything, any serious attention. So when the meeting was over and uh, I went upstairs uh, and there several kids were being counseled. I, I think I gave them the gospel, split up to counselors and came downstairs and that boy was still there. So I thought, I'm going to go talk to him. So I walked up to this big old boy and engaged him in a gospel conversation. And I remember I was not just into it very long at all. And I thought, this kid is not even close to being saved. I'm wasting my time. And so I closed down the conversation and I took three steps away from him. I went one, two, three. And in those three steps, can I tell you, God arrested me. Have you ever been arrested by God? 
He arrested me and he said, that kid's ready to get saved. And I remember thinking, God, he's not ready. I just talked to him. Have you ever done that? Have you ever argued with God about things? And so I remember I went three steps. It was like God said, go back and talk to him. So I did one, two, three. And I remember doing a U-turn. I'm thinking, how am I going to restart this gospel conversation? And you know what? I did an absolutely terrible job of restarting it. You know, like uh, blah, 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 blah. You know what I'm talking about? You ever done that? You don't even know what to say. And you feel like, man, am I acting like an idiot. But God is merciful. And you know what he did? The kid looked at me and here's what he said. He said, preacher, he said, I came here today from my grandfather's funeral. That's what he told me. And I was like, the Lord, the Holy Spirit finally loosed my tongue. And I looked at him and I said, young man, I bet you you're thinking about eternity. You're thinking about what's going to happen when I die. I said, wouldn't you like to be saved and know your sins are washed away and you're on your way to heaven? The kid starts crying. Took him upstairs within 30 minutes. He was wonderfully born again. The harvest was ripe, and I missed it. And you know what the Holy Spirit did? He came down and said, you missed it. He's ready. Now, he didn't look ready. Do you know that people can slam the door in your face and be five seconds away from salvation? See, sometimes we misinterpret things. Reminds me of my friend, I've given his story here, Matt Weber, who's a pastor in, in Wisconsin. Uh, he was... Uh, functioning addict and functioning was slipping away. He was on eight Oxycontins a day and his Christian sister who had no idea who was a functioning addict called him up and said, Matthew, something's wrong. You need to get saved. And she's given him the gospel and he's arguing and said, I don't need to get saved and all this. And finally he slams the phone down. That would not seem like a good gospel conversation. But do you know the next thing Matthew did? He got on his knees and got saved. <laughs> May I say that it's for all of us in this room, when you have what you might consider not a very good gospel encounter, choose to believe that God is working in their hearts, ripening the harvest, because he said he is. I never want to make anybody mad. God knows I don't. But if the gospel makes them mad, what are you going to do? Some, some people never get saved until they get mad. It's like this. They get mad. Then they get sad, and hallelujah, then they get glad, okay? Yeah, that happens sometimes. And again, I'm not purposely ever going to try to make anybody mad, but I will tell you, friends, all I'm trying to say is the harvest is ready. It's important for us to believe that. Otherwise, you go out in kind of a pessimism. And you know what pessimism does? It sets you up for more pessimism. Why not have a divine optimism? Guy slams the door in your face and said, I wonder what's going on behind that door. I bet you God's all over him. Maybe you had a word of prayer for him. Reminds me of the story I heard one time. Guy doing door-to-door -door evangelism. Had a heart for God. Started giving the gospel to the guy. Slammed the door in his face. And the guy began to weep. Just wept, sobbing out of the altar. Uh, on the altar. On the, uh, on the patio there, on the porch. Finally, the man inside opened the door again and saw the man weeping and ended up leading him to Jesus Christ. So the fields are not the problem. The laborers are. But that brings us to one other thought here when it comes to this issue of faith. So we have confidence in the message, confidence in the harvest. But there's one other thing you need to do, and that is have confidence in God's enabling. Kind of inferred this in our first point. So the problem is not God's enabling. The problem is our appropriating. The Bible says that God's grace is sufficient. You know what that means? His grace is more than enough. You'll never exhaust it. And in our weakness, that's when he's strong. It's not in our strength he's strong. He's strong in our weakness. I don't know about you. I think I feel the weakest when I'm involved in personal evangelism. What about you? Paul said that. I was in weakness. But that's actually to your advantage. Because when I'm weak, he's strong. So, so we go, how do we say this, in anticipation of God's enabling grace. I've got a dear friend of mine. He's a little bit of an eccentric personality, and, but a great guy. And years ago in the 90s, I was at Falls Baptist Church. I did not live there at the time. I lived in South Carolina. 
You say, what in the world did you move from the south to the north? What were you thinking? I've asked myself that for many years. Okay, but anyway, I'm telling you, you say, what got you across the Mason-Dixon line? There's only one thing that can get me across the Mason-Dixon line. The will of God. That's it. Okay, but anyway, so I moved up there to Wisconsin. I'm not a Southerner, but I got Southern blood in me. Okay, but anyway, my dad was a Southerner. And, uh, but anyway, so I... Um, um, Oh, I was going somewhere with that. Yeah, where was I going with that? Okay, yeah, okay. Got to go back and look at my boy. Oh, yeah, my friend. Okay, so I was at Falls Baptist Church. This is in the 90s. And this, uh, this, this young man at the time, he was uh, in uh, a, an internship in Milwaukee. And he had found Falls Baptist Church and started growing, going and growing. And um, he was uh, uh, training to be a doctor. And he was in the final stages of getting his, uh, becoming a doctor, a medical doctor. He was in his internship somewhere. And I remember the service when uh, Dr. Tom, we called him. And uh, Dr. Tom came forward and uh, uh, he asked me to come. Would you come and pray with me? And, and he said to me there, kneeling at the altar, he said, uh, Brother Van Gelderen, he said, I believe God is calling me to be a missionary. Now, I love Dr. Tom, don't get me wrong, but he, he's got a very nervous personality. He's just unique. And I, I, I shouldn't say this out loud, but I thought to myself, oh, don't do that. You'll never make it. Nobody will ever support you. Now, I didn't say that. Isn't that terrible? It's like my dad, when he came down the aisle at nine years old, or 14, excuse me, to surrender to the call to preach, he was a terrible stutterer. He grabbed the preacher's hand and he stuttered out, God has called me to preach. You know what his pastor looked him in the eye and said, now, young man, not everybody has to preach. Isn't that an encouragement? <laughs> That was my dad's start in the call to preach. And so uh, I didn't tell that to my brother, uh, Brother Tom, but I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know. I don't think this is going to work very well. Now, again, he's a great guy, but just, you know, just unique. I mean, just very, if you're ever with Dr. Tom, you will have prayer meetings in very unusual places like the middle of a mall or whatever else. I, now, Brother Van Gelder, we need to pray. You know, here we are. I prayed in most unusual spots with Dr. Tom. He's just the most unique guy I've ever met on planet Earth. Just, just is. And I thought, there's no way. I mean, nobody's going to support you. It's just, just too unique. It's not going to work. And, and I didn't tell him that. And he began to, to prepare for the mission field. And the day came for him to go on deputation. And, uh, and I will tell you, he made record time. He holds the record for Baptist World Mission for getting support in less than a year. You say, how in the world did he do it? Well, I'm going to tell you how he did it. Back in those early years at Falls Baptist Church, God began to deal in his heart. And there are three truths. He, had, he was really going out there trying to win people, but he was very ineffective. Wasn't seeing a lot of results. And maybe get a little discouraged. And one day he went to a netcaster seminar and he learned three truths that changed his life. Number one, the gospel is powerful. Number two, he learned that the fields are white under harvest. They're ready to be harvested. The problem's not the fields, it's, it's the laborers. And then number three, he learns that God's grace is sufficient. What God calls you to do, he will enable you to do. So for every one of us, there is a pathway to being effective on winning people to Jesus Christ. Every one of us, no exception. So he learned those three things. And he began to go out in evangelism with a new attitude. And the, and the attitude was anticipation. He was expecting the gospel to be explosive. He was expecting people to be ready. And he was expecting God to enable him. Tom Johnson's soul winning stories, I'm just telling you, are unbelievable. Just, just give me a few. Uh, Dr. Tom one day was driving down the road and uh, something malfunctioned with his car. And it wasn't something big, but he was going to have to stop and he was going to have to, you know, fix the car and uh, take a little bit of time to get it ready. And uh, you know what Dr. Tom's very first thought was? His very first thought was this. Uh, I wonder who God wants me to talk to. I'm going to be honest with you. Do you know what my first thought would have been? Stupid car. You know what I'm talking about? Are you with me? Are you more like me or like Dr. Tom? Okay. And so he pulls off at the exit. He pulls off in the parking lot. 71-year-old lady was walking across the parking lot. Now, Dr. Tom is just real practically thick. Well, that must be her. So he gets out, walks up to the 71-year-old lady, leads her to the Lord. Amen. And the 71-year-old lady said this to Dr. Tom. He said, young man, you're not going to believe this. He said, I woke up this morning and said, you know, I don't know if I died, I'd go to heaven. I need to know that. 
She said, I called my Catholic priest. He couldn't tell me. I called all my friends. They couldn't tell me. And now, wouldn't you know it, you come and you tell me. That sounds like a ready harvest to me. What do you think? Another time, Dr. Tom was in a grocery store. Dr. Tom will witness to anybody anywhere. I'm just telling you the truth. And uh, he, uh, he's uh, in a grocery store and he takes out a gospel track and he sticks it in front of a guy's face. And here's what the gospel track said. Are you 100% sure if you die tonight, you go to heaven and not hell? You know one of those subtle approach tracks? You ever seen one of those that just kind of slips the gospel in without people knowing? One of those kind of things. Yeah, are you 100% sure if you die tonight, you go to heaven and not hell? He said, the guy looked at it like he's seen a ghost. So Dr. Tom says, you want to talk about this? The guy goes, yeah. They walk out. You know those little seats out in front, the benches right out in front of the grocery store? They put them there for personal evangelism. I bet you didn't know that. Okay, so sat down in front of the bench. He leads the guy to the Lord. Amen. And you know what Dr. Tom, the, the guy says to Dr. Tom? You're not going to believe this. He said, I came to the grocery store from the graveyard. He said, three months ago, one of my parents died. He said, a couple days ago, the other parent died. I just buried him just yesterday. He said, I just came from the graveyard and I threw myself across the fresh grave. I'm completely prostrate. And he said, as I was on that grave, he said, I prayed to God. Oh, God, would you please tell me how I could be 100% sure if I died right now, I would go to heaven and not hell. <laughs> Minutes later, the gospel dragon's in front of his face. Now, I don't know about you. That kind of sounds like it's ready. The harvest is ready. You say, preacher, that doesn't happen to me. Can I say this carefully? Dr. Tom believes it, but you don't. Amen. You see, faith is so important. You see this? Anticipating the fact tomorrow at work, there's people all around here. God's getting them ready to be saved. Amen. They may not even know it, but God's getting them ready to be saved. He's ripening the harvest. He's doing it. Everywhere. See, he's ripening the harvest. So you got to believe it. You got to believe that the gospel's dynamite. You got to believe that the, um, the uh, fields are ripe. And you got to believe that God's grace is sufficient to enable you to give the gospel. Now that brings us to the second thing. So, first of all, you've got to understand what you have. You have the Holy Spirit, a person of power who is very interested in people being saved. But secondly, you have to understand who you are. Look at this. It says, you shall receive power. Uh, excuse me. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be, here it is, witnesses unto me. Now, that word witness is a very interesting word. Now, obviously, uh, one of the things we know we are is heralds. You know, we think of a herald, you know, in the old medieval days that they'd send into a town and he'd uh, give a, a proclamation from the king. And in a certain sense, we are heralds. But a herald has the idea of giving somebody else's message. It's almost a little more impersonal. But a witness isn't like that. A witness, that actual he, um, English word comes from an old English word that we see in the King James from time to time. And it's the King James word, to wit. To wit. Do you know what to wit means? It means to know. You know what a witness is? It's somebody who knows firsthand. And when a, a witness is different when they're, when they're trying to tell you something, they're personally involved because they believe it. They know it by experience. So they're witnessing to you, this is true. It happened to me. Now, as I travel... Sometimes I get tired driving down the road, okay? Sometimes you have 12-hour days on the road, and I've driven, I have driven crazy. Arizona, I've driven from L.A. to Miami in one trip, okay? So I-10, I mean, you know, just long days, 16-hour days sometimes, and you pretty soon, sometimes you get tired. And if you really get tired, sometimes I'll turn on the radio and I look for talk radio. And, uh, you know, I've some, you know, and you get recognized the voices, you know, and oh, that's Sean Hannity, whatever, and uh, whatever, and you start listening to the to the talk radio, and and uh, by the way, if I really get tired, I listen to liberal talk radio. <laughs> yeah, you say why? Because it makes me mad. <laughs> okay, you know, I'm thinking, huh? Lib liberal talk radio does not understand they have kept me alive. One of the reasons I'm still preaching today is because of liberal talk radio. Okay, it's like. How could anybody believe that? That's crazy. Yeah, blood pressure goes up. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. 
It just is kind of how it is. But in all of that talk right here, there's one thing talk guys do. You know what they do? They read their commercials. There's two ways they read the commercials. They read the commercials or they actually believe in the product. Have you ever listened to him read the commercial thinking, he doesn't know a thing about that. He's just reading the commercial. And other times you're thinking, you know what? I think he believes in that product. I think he's actually used it. So can I try that out on you tonight? I'm going to tell you about a product, okay? I'm not a talk radio guy, but I am going to try to tell you about a product tonight that I am a witness of. I know by experience. Now, you have to understand as a preacher, so all of us have certain, certain body parts. We talked about body parts last night. Certain body parts that are more valuable than others. And others, you work with your hands. Boy, you got to keep those, you know, you can't have a sprained elbow or a strained arm. You got to fingers, can't have arthritis. You, you know, if you're a mechanic, you got to have, your arms are everything. Now, for a preacher, you know what's everything? Vocal cords. And so one of the greatest enemies of a preacher is getting a head cold. Because it drains down in your vocal cords. And there have been a couple times I could not talk. I lost my voice because I got a cold at the wrong time and I preached on it and I lost my voice. So we, we fight colds like nobody's business. And several years ago, somebody said to me, hey, have you ever heard of zinc lozenges? And, and there's a brand name. It's called Cold Ease. All you got to do is go down to the store and you, when you're starting to get a little goopy, just pop that the baby in there, suck on that thing, and it'll shorten your cold or maybe even keep that cold away. Buddy, I went right down. I thought, okay, I'm going to try it. Won't hurt to try it. Got my package of cold ease, six, seven bucks. I can't remember down at Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, wherever. And uh, so I got those things. Sure enough, you got a little goopy, wake up thinking, oh, I think a cold one, pop one. You got to get them right off the bat. Pop that thing in there, suck on it, maybe do it one or two more times. And I will tell you, friends, I have seen colds shortened or sometimes not even show up. Now, after the service, go down to uh, the Walmart on the way home and get yourself some cold ease. I'm telling you, for me, it is a miracle drug. When I was growing up, they had a guy by the name of Carl Malden who did uh, American Express commercials. And he used to say this, don't leave home without it. How many remember that? Yeah, these are the old people in wheelchairs. Okay, there they are. Okay, yeah. Don't leave home without it. I'm telling you, I can leave home without the American Express, but not without cold ease. Did I convince you? Did I convince you? Okay, you get the idea. What am I trying to do? I'm being a witness. I know. I'm not just reading a commercial. I'm not trying. Nobody's paying me anything. I, I just believe in the product. It's worked for me. Maybe it'll work for you. You all have done that. Every one of you, something's happened, or maybe you went to a doctor, or something happened over here where you got a certain product. Wow, it really helped me. You ought to try this, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know, people sometimes make money off it, sometimes they don't, and, and whatever. I mean, all kinds of things happen, you know. And so, uh, but that's the idea of a witness. It's somebody who knows. Now, friends, I want to just see a couple of things about this before we wind this down. So a witness... Notice what this says, witnesses, help me out now, unto me. So the idea of being this kind of witness is a witness, how do I say this, that has encountered the Lord Jesus. Can I say this, that witnessing is not doing it because you have to, it's doing it because you want to. You are so excited about what Jesus is doing in your life, you can't keep it in. You've got to tell people, man, you wouldn't believe what Jesus did for me today. You wouldn't believe what he did for me yesterday. You wouldn't believe what he's doing in our family. Man, you become a witness. But I will tell you, friends, if Jesus is not a real part of your life, it's awful hard to witness about something that isn't real to you. Now, we could talk a lot about, we could talk about the hour with God right now, and that would be appropriate. We could talk about meeting with God right now, and that would be appropriate. But I want to deal with something that may be a little closer to home. Do you know where we really find out whether or not we're really encountering Jesus and walking with Him? And that is, hang on, where it's really tested is at home. You can feel a fool, Canaan Baptist Church, but you mark my words, you cannot fool the people in your walls of your home. You know, my dad used to say this about the home. He used to preach on the home. He said, there's precious little in the Bible about the home. Precious little. When you look at the full scope of the Bible, there's hardly anything on the home. But everything on the home, if you'll do it, it will work. 
Okay, I want to ask you a simple question. If a husband unconditionally loves his wife, and the wife is, a wife, wife is respectful and reverent to the husband, and the kids honor and obey mom and dad, will that home work? Every single time. Well, that wasn't rocket science. Every one of us has one simple responsibility. We think it's all complex. It's not complex. Let's start with you kids. You want to witness, you start walking with Jesus, and I promise you this, you will treat your parents with respect. And if you do not treat your parents with respect, you are not walking with Jesus. And some of you need to meet with Jesus and clean up your act. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm going to say this as carefully as I know how. Your parents should have earlier in life got to a point where they didn't let you get away with it. But sometimes they did, and now we got a problem because you're 16. I don't remember one time in my entire life being disrespectful to my dad, not one time. You say, why? I don't necessarily know why. I just, I just knew that it wasn't a good option. Somewhere when I was young, by the way, may I say this, as I've said earlier, my dad was no child abuser. I will tell you this, though. I love my dad, and he loved me unconditionally, and I didn't want to be disrespectful to him. But I will tell you this, when I was younger, he did not let me get away with it. In fact, I remember when I was getting into my teenage years, one time I got a little mouthy with my mom. I did, but it was disrespectful to my mom. I say to my own discredit, uh, I was just probably, I don't know how to explain this. Mom probably had a little more fudge than my dad did. And um, I uh, remember one time, and my dad pulled me in and said, Jim, you're not going to do that anymore. That's my wife, and you do not treat my wife that way. He said, now, Jim, I love you, but I love your mother more. She was here first. And you're not going to treat your mother that way anymore. I'm thinking, yes, sir. <laughs> I think we got that loud and clear. I didn't, I'm just telling you, friends. You know, the Bible says something about this, young people. I want you to get this because I'm trying to get down where you, you meet with Jesus. It affects the basic things of your life. Don't tell me you're a good Christian if you roll your eyes at mom and dad because you're not. The Bible says, The eye that mocketh at his father, and despiseth to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out, and the young eagles shall eat it. Well, that's a pretty wild verse. What does it mean to mock at your father? Yeah, you're talking to your dad. You go, or you'll roll your eyes. That's a strong verse. I'd be a little concerned if I were you. Despise to obey your mother. Your mother says, clean the dishes. And you go, Pff. You know what the Bible says? You know what that has reference to? Untimely death. Untimely death. Proverbs 20, 20. Whoso curseth his father or mother shall surely be, or his lamp shall be put out in obscure darkness. Again, referencing untimely death. You say, well, I've never cussed out my parents. I hate to tell you this. The Hebrew verb is talking about far more than cussing them out. Curse in the Old Testament means to treat lightly. Arguing with your parents is treating them lightly. Oh, oh. hassling your parents, yelling at your parents is treating them lightly. And I'm just telling you, that's why the Bible says it's the first commandment with promise that you'll live long on the earth. And it seems to infer that if you do the opposite and treat them disrespectfully, disrespectfully you won't live long on the earth. That's what it seems to indicate. If I were you, if you had a brain between your ears, you'd treat them respectfully just based on those verses of Scripture. It should be on far more than that. But I'm telling young people, maybe your parents weren't saved when you were younger and they didn't know how to deal with you and, and they didn't know how to keep you from being disrespectful like my dad did, but that's still no excuse because God's grace is bigger than that. <laughs> and no teenager in this room has any excuse in treating your parents like dirt. And if you do, you need to go home tonight and get right with God and you need to start seeking God so you have a relationship with Him so you can be a witness. So you can say, man, you're not going to see what, believe what Jesus did in my life. I used to treat my parents disrespectfully, but he's changed that attitude. Yeah, I've met with Jesus. I know him now. Okay, how about this one? Wives reverencing their husbands. Reverence. Respect. Some of you have seen the book Love and Respect. This is going to be new to you, but... Can I ask you a simple question? It's the same word when it talks about reverencing God. So I got a question. Do you, how do I say this? Do you roll your eyes at God? Do you sigh with God like, <sighs> we saw a preacher, I'd never do that, be disrespectful. Well, God says that's the point. <laughs> I will tell you, most of you know this. 
But God wired men to need respect and he wired women to need love. It's just the way it is. I know you ladies are going to just be shocked by this, but if you're at your husband's work, if a co-worker came up to your husband and said this, I hate your guts. Every time I look at you, I hate your guts. But i got to tell you one thing, man, I respect you. There's not a man in this room that wouldn't walk away and say, yeah, that's pretty cool, yeah. Hates my guts, but he respects me. Like a woman can't get that. Like somebody says they hate you, like the world's over. But for a man, as long as he's respected, I don't care what you think of me. Man, you respect me? I got that. That's okay. We're built differently. So, um, and, and I'm trying to be helpful, care, careful here, but I am trying to get practical about this witness thing. Yeah, see, real practical. Because, dear ladies, please understand this. When you treat your husband disrespectfully in front of the kids, here's what you're saying. Hey, kids, I want you to obey mom and dad just like, uh, and reverence and respect us just like I don't your father. It won't work. It won't work. Basically, if you want to teach your kids to reverence God, reverence your husband and model it. I may say this, your actions are far more powerful than your words. And so, so there we are. Now, I know, I, I, I hate to come to this point in the message, because I, I know what it is. Uh, the guys are out here and think, preacher, let my kids have it. That was great. Let my wife. Really, the tr truth problem is it's you. I'm talking about our men. Because the truth is, any man in this room would do their job loving their wife. Most of the time, everything else is going to fall in place. Love is sacrificial. Love is not asking for something reciprocal. Love sometimes has to love when it's not easy and there is nothing coming back to you. It's sacrificial. And how do I say it? Love is selfless. And every woman on planet Earth knows when there's something going on and there's ulterior motives. They just know. Women can smell selfishness. Men, we talked about it again, uh, like nobody's business. So here's the point. Say, preacher, what in the world does this have to do with evangelism? Everything. You start seeing God give you a supernatural love for your wife, and you start seeing God give you a supernatural respect for your husband, and young people, you start giving, seeing God give you uh, honoring and right attitude toward your parents. You know what you're going to be? A witness. You're going to say, well, man, look what God's doing in my life. God's changing me. Friends, when we begin to meet with God and we begin to see nuts and bolts transformation in our lives at home, we know God's on the move. <laughs> He's doing something. And we all know we're not perfect. And the point is, whenever you, you start to deal with respect for a woman, she's sitting there thinking, preacher, you don't know my husband. And can I say something? I don't, but I do know your God. He can, he can grace you. You may be in a tough situation. And looking at some of the men out here, I think you might be. But I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You might be in a tough situation, but God's grace is pretty big stuff. And man, you might be in a tough one where your wife is really disrespectful and it's hard to love her. I get that. But you got something going for you and it's called Jesus and He loved you when you were worse off than your wife ever will be. See, the point is, friends, when we're talking to know, to wit, we are talking about knowing Jesus. We're meeting with Him. He's gracing us. He's helping us in difficult relationships. He's helping us. We've made all kinds of bad decisions. Now we got a home with all kinds of disaster going on, and we need divine intervention. And you start seeing Jesus intervene in your life, your wife's life, your kid's life. And I will tell you, friends, you'll want to tell everybody. Man, you're not going to believe what Jesus is doing in our home. You're not going to believe what God's doing in my life. See, the, the problem with witnessing is we're defeated Christians and we try to go out and tell people how wonderful Jesus is and when we're just kind of wondering when he's going to show up. See, a witness, you got to get what a witness is. A witness is somebody who knows. He knows. Years ago, there was a, an atheist by the name of Charles Bradlaugh. I think this was in the country of um, England. He was an avowed infidel, and he, tra cha he challenged a uh, guy by the name of H.P. Hughes to a debate, a public debate. The preacher was the head of a rescue mission in London, England, and he accepted the challenge with one condition, that he could bring 100 men and women who would tell what happened in their lives, how they once lived in deep sin, having overcome in terrible lives, vices, and uh, situations with their parents. And he says he would not only have them tell how they got saved, he would allow them to be cross-examined so that their stories could be verified. 
And then he challenged the atheists to bring as many people as he could find whose lives had been transformed by atheism. Well, when the day showed up, guess what? He had a hundred people whose lives had been transformed by the power of the gospel. And you know, the atheist was nowhere to be seen. You know what he was afraid of? Witnesses. And that preacher began the parade. Many people came for the debate, unsaved people waiting for the debate. And that preacher began the parade. Those people in front of the microphone telling people how they'd gotten saved, how their lives had been transformed, how they used to be defeated in sin. And it's story after story. And before long, many of those people who came to that debate had come to know Jesus Christ through the power of witnesses. See, God's telling us you need to be witnesses. Witnesses is not just going out and speaking. Witnesses is speaking because you know. You know. Sometimes we wonder, why are some people so effective in evangelism? Don't get me wrong. God gifts people. I get all that. But sometimes it's just people so excited about Jesus, they got to tell the next person. They're a witness. I... Um, Ran across the story several years ago of a man by the name of Chrysler, and that's not spelled like the car. It's spelled with a K. And he was a great violinist. Some of you may have heard of him. Some of you that are in the string program may have heard of a guy by the name of Chrysler. And he, he made a lot of money, but he would give it away a lot. He was kind of a guy who was um, very uh, phil phil whatever that philanthropic or whatever. I can't even say the word. Uh, he would just uh, give stuff away. And so one day he was in a, a shop, and he came across an exquisite violin. And uh, he desperately wanted it. It was unique. And, and uh, so he told the guy, I don't have enough money, but I got to do a few concerts. I'll come back and buy it. And uh, he just begged the guy not to sell it. But the guy did. So when he came back to buy the violin, he said, oh, I'm sorry, I've already sold that. And he said, do you mind telling me who sold it? Because I got to go get that violin. And, and he told him that some collector had uh, bought it. And so he went over to the collector and, and the collector said, oh, no, I'm not going to sell that. It's become my most prized possession. Now, only a musician would understand this. But Chrysler was distraught. And he said to the collector, in just deep sincerity, he said, oh, he said, could you let me play the violin one more time before it is constrained to silence? You know how it goes. You thank the Lord for musicians. Okay, but anyway, yeah, I just said it with great passion. You know how the collector was? Oh, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, that kind of thing. Guy took the violin, straightened the notes, began to play the violin, and the collector began to cry. He said, that is the most beautiful music I've ever heard. He said, Mr. Chrysler, take that violin, take that violin into the world and let people hear it. Amen. You know what Jesus is saying to us tonight? He's saying, take this book, take the gospel, take it into the world and let people hear it. Could I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed? Would you stand to your feet, heads bowed, eyes closed? Heads bowed, eyes closed. I'm just telling you, friend, some of us, I'm telling you, if we let Jesus march into our home and our lives and start to see transformation in our homes, you wouldn't shut up about telling people what Jesus can do, saving them and changing their lives. All I'm telling you, friends, do you see it? You got to understand what you've got, understand who you are. In just a moment, I'm going to ask the pianist to play. When it does, God's touched your heart. God just invites you to come, kneel. I think tonight, maybe whole families could come and kneel. You say, Pritchard, tonight we got problems in our family. We need Jesus. Maybe it'd be good to get on your knees and say, we need to be witnesses of Jesus' transforming power in our family. Yeah, maybe some of the kids should take the lead, get there on the, now, I don't know, just get there and meet together and have a word of prayer together. I'm telling you, you've got a dying world, lost and going in that world, and we're screaming and yelling at each other in our homes, telling people how Jesus can change their lives with a terrible testimony. It doesn't work. So God's touched your heart. I know going to the home is always tough. It hurts. I'm not trying in any way to be unnecessarily hard. I'm just telling you, if we're going to reach the world, we've got to see our homes reach first <laughs> with the power of Jesus Christ. So God's touched your heart. You come, kneel, do business with God as the piano plays.